0: Today's scripture comes from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 21 to 26. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. And the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever.
1: Good morning. My name is Brian and I'm one of the pastors at Exilic. Welcome to another online Sunday service. Uh, If you're just joining us, last week we started a new sermon series in the book of Isaiah, and we've entitled it, The King of Justice Who Redeems. And I think we need this sermon series and the passage today and the the rest of the sermons in this series uh, more than we ever needed it before. Because let's face it, there are things that are broken that need fixing, things that need healing such as racial and ethnic and even gender divisions in our society. And for too long, the Modern Project told us that all that it would take is our human resolve our human reason and our human resources to fight the evils uh, that persist in our culture today but that hypothesis has been tried and it's failed to a large scale and the 20th century with all its wars and famine and fighting um, and corruption has been just the prime example uh, let alone the persisting evils of our world today We can't look to human resolve and reason and resources any longer. We need to look to heaven for the resolutions to the world's most daunting problems. And this passage today tells us that we have a God who hates evil, namely social injustice, and has intervened in an extraordinary way. And that's what we'll take a look at today. And we'll do that in the following three points. Why does God hate injustice so much what action will he take to resolve it and what will his result uh, be from his action and so why does God hate injustice so much what action will he take to resolve it and what will result from his action let's take a look at why uh, God why does God hate injustice so much and to get to the point god hates injustice because it's so vitally connected to another kind of sin called idolatry and according to one commentator this is the first place in isaiah where you see the clearest connection between those two things idolatry and social injustice Uh, matt smethurst tweeted just recently this There's a reason the prophets so consistently connect idolatry and social injustice. In the end, idols will always demand things of you that you can only give them by exploiting other people. In verses 21 to 23, we'll look at that in a second together. You'll see a series of examples that uh, connects idolatry and social injustice. Um, In that way, you'll see that people um, in their idolatry as they worship things other than God for their sense of satisfaction, fulfillment, meaning in life will require them to exploit other people. That would be the cost for their worship of these false gods. Uh, Look with me at verses 21 to 23 now. How the faithful city has become a whore She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers, your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. You see, Isaiah gives us a picture Uh, These examples of how idolatry and social injustice are linked together um, in the inner quality of the city of Jerusalem. And what he says is, first of all, that the faithful city has become a whore, uh, meaning that the people of God represented in the city, uh, they're selling their body for other lovers instead of loving God as her true husband. And this is unjust. Because you see, she's cheating and she's broken legal vows, uh, vows of commitment to be faithful and true to one husband. Um, Another example, you see that righteousness was lodged in her, but now there there are a lot of murderers, uh, murderers, people not promoting life, but taking life as if they were God himself, the only giver and taker of life. Uh, You find next a metaphor, silver turning to dross and and wine being mixed with water, basically becoming diluted and becoming not very pure. Uh, It's a metaphor for the inner quality of things in this city, Uh, things going from excellent and pure uh, to undesirable and impure. Finally, you have princes, these national leaders who are responsible for the welfare in all in society, including the most vulnerable, the the fatherless and the widow. Uh, But they're stealing uh, like thieves, Uh, greed and privilege in the form of bribery over and against ruling with equity and justice for all as God wills. You see, people are turning to things other than God to be their God for their fulfillment and satisfaction, and they're doing it at the expense of others. So if idolatry is looking to something other than God to be your God, and social injustice is when those with power exploit the powerless for their own gain, what we see is that idolatry and injustice linked together is the antithesis of the biblical ethos, the central one, which is love God and love neighbor. And one heinous example of an actual practice going on in Judah was child sacrifices. King Ahaz, which is one of the kings that Isaiah's ministry uh, takes place in, uh, King Ahaz was practicing child sacrifices. But why was this so deplorable? Well, it's because this heinous act of murder was an offering in worship to a false God, a fake God, a false image literally at the cost of an innocent child's life so that they could gain some advantage or favor from their so-called God. Look, the, the serious issue for God here is that his image and the image that he's put in his image bearers, us, Uh, Human beings is not only being lost with idolatry and social injustice, but being vandalized and mocked. Andy Crouch, a Christian journalist, in his book Playing God, says this. Does God just dislike it when human beings are mean to one another and also happen to dislike it when human beings create false gods? No. God hates injustice and idolatry because they're the same thing. The introduction into God's very good world of false images, images that destroy and uh, the true images God himself has placed in the world to declare his character and voice his praise. Whether making false gods idolatry or playing false gods injustice, the result is identical. The true image of God is lost and not just lost, but replaced by something that purports often very persuasively, to represent the ultimate truth about reality. The truth about God and the truth about God's very good world is exchanged for a lie. You see why this is such an effrontery to God? It's blasphemy for God because idolatry and social injustice seeks to destroy the image of God. Take, for example, uh, you're a painter. And your Opus Magnum, your your crowning achievement in life is a painting of your own child. And you've poured your heart and soul into this lifetime work. And then someone comes along with a can of paint and throws it onto your painting. You know, I wouldn't blame you if you became indignant with rage and anger. Well, why? Well, not only is it disrespectful, but it's hateful to you. And by extension, Uh, to your child that you drew in your painting. Take another example. Um, I have a daughter and her name's Evelyn and we're expecting a second in September. We're excited for that uh, to be parents twice over. And uh, Evelyn looks like me. Uh, People say that she looks maybe 80% me, 20% Jeannie, my wife, Um, and they think that maybe that, that percentage is swinging the other way towards my wife, which I'm happy about. But let's say someone tried to tell her that she could get plastic surgery. She should get plastic surgery. to change her image so that she looks more beautiful or like something else. Um, You know, I I think I would lose my mind with anger. And then if this individual forced her to get plastic surgery, um, I think I would lose it and unleash all of my hate on this individual. And I think I would be justified. And the same is with God. This is damnable before God. This God hates. He hates that his image and the image and his image bearers are being so disdained. And God cannot let this go unpunished. He'll step in and do something about it. So what should we expect? What action will he take to solve it? We should expect verse 24. Uh, Let's read this together now. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. You know, in the previous verse, you had all these horrible national leaders who were devastating the lives of the most vulnerable in society. But in this verse, Isaiah is going to turn to the one good divine leader um, and literally, Isaiah is helping us to see that with the rising wave of injustice, uh, the, the rising wave of injustice that we saw in the first three verses, uh, with infidelity and with murder and impurity and all these horrible national leaders, uh, you see in the assemblage of this divine titles uh, rising against it is a bigger and more frightening wave. Of God's mounting vengeance and fury against evil and social injustice and he's the one who is able to do it as well i mean look at these divine titles that are assembling and mounting against the injustices he's the lord he's the lord of hosts he's the mighty one of israel that first word lord is this hebrew word Adon, which is where we get that word adonai or adonai and it means sovereign and master Lord of hosts, he's the one who commands the hosts of heaven's angelic armies, and he's the mighty one of Israel. And I love that word mighty one is this Hebrew word called bore, um, and it means strong in power. Please, somebody take up that name and name their child bore. But the combined effect is that of complete mastery, dominance, and strength. And we're told that it's the mighty sovereign God himself who will take vengeance on his enemies. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, conveys this mounting vengeance and fury of God's wrath well when he said this. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Pretty graphic and pretty gruesome indeed. And maybe at this point you may be thinking, well, this is too violent and this is too hateful but yes i hope that this would fly in the face of your modern idea that god is only love and that he can't hate and be vengeful and that any association with a lovey-dovey god with hate and wrath and vengeance is simply not compatible But I want to say today, and what the Bible seems to say today is that a God who is mighty to save has to be a God who's also mighty to destroy. And this is what we need. A God so tender, a God who so tenderly loves that he would also be a God who fiercely protects and fights those threats against the things that he loves so dearly. And what he loves is this. He loves holiness because he's holy, he loves purity and he loves justice because he's those things too. Like a mother bear protecting her cubs at all costs with teeth and claws included, or better yet, a judge who must uphold justice and push for the maximum penalty for the most severe crimes because the love for justice and the preservation of justice requires it it demands it this is how much god our king hates injustice that he'd be willing to take vengeance with his own hands and isaiah tells us that god will intervene with hostile action against us because we're his enemies A people full of evil, guilty of idolatry and social injustice, guilty of vandalizing the image of God to God and in each other. What will happen on this dreadful day? And what will result? Here's where we find the answer, but it's not what we expected. Let's read verse 25a together. I will turn my hand against you. you know, God says that he's going to turn his hand against us. And it sounds pretty bad because it is. And usually, um, this is a negative phrase that describes God's hostile action in judgment. And yet what we see here, uh, this hostile action actually introduces uh, a work of restoration. Restoration. Read with me the rest of the passage, 25 to 26. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lime, and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. You know, you would think that I will turn my hand against you would follow with a description or explanation of that dreadful day when God's hostile action would come upon his people, his enemies, his foes. But in a sudden turn of expectations, the hostile hand of God's judgment brings about a new day of restoration and righteousness. What happened here? What happened with all the talk before about God's hate of evil and injustice, his mounting vengeance and hostile actions to destroy his enemies. Well, Isaiah undoubtedly points forward to the day when God's vengeance and wrath was poured out on Jesus, who became sin for us on a cross, and thus an enemy of God in our place. You know, they said he wasn't God when he was, made him a puppet for their rusings and mocked him with a crown of thorns and injustice. And the injustice of it all was that Jesus was innocent. He was pure. He was righteousness. Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, we're told later in chapter 53 of Isaiah, became so marred in appearance from the beatings that he took that you couldn't tell the difference between his face and ground beef actually, the phrase there is that his face was beyond human semblance. But do you see that this was the Lord's will, that Jesus should suffer and die in our place? Why? For you and me to be forgiven of our idolatry and our social injustice and see the days of restoration that only his suffering would bring. Friends, Jesus Christ was destroyed as an enemy of God so that we could be saved and restored as his children, as his friends. And what kind of restor- restoration are we talking about here? We're talking about total restoration. You see, uh, verses 21 to 26, our passage today um, is said to be a palastrophic poem. Meaning that it's written such that it's A, B, C, D, and then D prime, uh, C prime, B prime, and A prime in construction. And so the literary form drives the theological point. And what is the theological point that restoration will take place uh, totally, totally for every problem that we see in the first three verses of our passage? We see an equal and opposite resolution in the last three verses. So, A and A prime, you see the collapse of the faithful city, um, but it will be restored as a righteous and faithful city. Uh, B and B prime, where injustice ran rampant, um, in the form of uh, murder, uh, justice will be restored in true ju- uh, judges. C and C prime, where the value of silver has degraded to dross, the dross will be purged, it says. And then D and D prime, and finally, corrupt princes and leaders will be replaced by the Lord himself, the Adonai, the mighty sovereign of Israel. What would total restoration look like? Where every tear will be no more, where death Uh, will turn to eternal life where mourning and pain will turn to joy and celebration all former things gloriously renewed we hear the voice of the one seated on the throne in revelation 20 21 5 when he said behold i am making all things new but isaiah knew under the inspiration of god what he was writing because actually this is an imperfect palistrophic poem, even though this is the inerrant word of God, meaning that Isaiah left out something on purpose. And what was that thing? Well, it was wine. You see, for every problem in the first three verses, there's an opposite and equal resolution in the last three verses, except for one thing, wine. We're told in verse 22, your best wine mixed with water, meaning that wine became more like water with delusion. Dilution. But if we're going to see the resolution to this problem, we should expect to see something in the, in the text, like even though your wine was turned to water, there will come a day when water will be turned to wine. But we don't get that, at least not yet. Because one day, the Lord, the Adonai, the Mighty One of Israel, would come and fulfill this passage by literally turning water into wine. And this was Jesus' first miracle in Cana. And on the night that he was betrayed, he said, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. The restoration of all things and the Lord Adonai will do it and when he comes back he will once and for all fulfill this passage to the restoration and the redemption and the healing of all things and the glory of all things let's pray